Social media posts reveal a lot about the posters. That's why some agencies look at job candidates or security clearance applicants' social media accounts. Now, research by my next guest shows how monitoring social media posts can reveal indicators of suicide and therefore help prevent it. Harvard psychology professor Matthew Nock joins me now. Dr. Nock, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And you've been studying suicide for quite a long time, so it sounds like this joins a long list of indicators that if people are sensitive to, they can maybe help people prevent suicide. What are some of the indicators besides social media? And we'll get to the details there in a moment. So I've been at Harvard studying suicide for 20 years now. So we've been looking at trying to understand suicide in the general population, among adolescents, among military service members, veterans, and so on. And there are some key risk factors across all groups we've examined, probably most prominently the presence of mental illness. So about 90 to 95% of people who die by suicide have some form of mental disorder before their death. And usually it's what we call comorbidity or multimorbidity, which refers to having two, three, four mental disorders at once. Depression is the one that people think of most, and it has the strongest relationship with suicidal thinking. But other disorders like alcohol use, substance use, aggressive behavior, what we call intermittent explosive disorder, are more predictive of of suicidal behavior, so acting on those thoughts. And we think it's really the combination of those factors that put people at elevated risk. All right. So looking at social media postings then, that's kind of once removed from observation of the person themselves. And it might be that the people closest to the person don't even see those posts. They can see the outbursts. They can see the alcohol consumption. They can hear direct statements, I'd like to kill myself or something along those lines. So tell us about the research in social media, and you used Army subjects here. Yes. So this work with social media, trying to better understand and predict suicide, builds on decades of work on how people talk about suicide. So for decades, we've known that about two-thirds of people who die by suicide told someone ahead of time that they were thinking about death or dying or wanting to kill themselves. So we've long known that people often give us signals that they're thinking about suicide, that they're at risk. People don't really know how to respond. And research has also shown that about 80% of people who die by suicide denied suicidal thoughts or intentions in their last communication before dying, which makes it understandable that people wouldn't know what to do. When should we act on someone's talking about suicide and when shouldn't we? What social media does is provides a platform for capturing all of that information and systematizing how we scan for it uh, and how we respond to it. And so we've been the past few years working with a social media platform. I think this is what you're referring to called Rally Point, which is sort of Facebook meets LinkedIn for military service members and veterans. It's a place where People can go and post about what they're experiencing. They enjoy fishing and hunting and questions about the military and so on. And occasionally people will post about suicide. And so we've been building machine learning classifiers. So basically algorithms that sweep over posts and in an automatized, computerized way, identify the posts of people who are having suicidal thoughts and posting about them or posting hints about them and intervening in real time to try and reach out to those folks and save them. And what are some of the things that you can see in a rally point? I mean, when people discuss suicide, they could say, gee, one thing we want to do is help our comrades avoid suicide. That's one thing. But do people express thoughts on this rally point as postings that could be indicators that the poster is thinking about suicide? Absolutely. So we've built these classifiers that are rally point specific in a way and that we 
capitalize on the fact that many military service members and veterans will use language that's a little bit different from what people use in the general population. For instance, there's a longstanding statistic that there are 22 suicides per day among veterans. And so someone might post, I'm about to be one of the 22, where in the general population, that doesn't mean so much. But on this site, we know that number is often used to, to sure. refer to suicide. And so those are posts that will flag for humans to take a look at and determine, is this poster at risk of suicide? Are they posting about suicide? And then right now, the model is that humans from Rally Point will intervene in real time. And we've had dozens of cases so far where we found people who were suicidal and intervened to try and keep them safe. And our next research steps are building automated interventions that suggest to other people that they reach out to the person at risk or suggest to the person at risk that they take steps to try and keep themselves safe. So we can really scale this up and potentially share it with other other platforms. We're speaking with Dr. Matthew Nock. He is chairman of the psychology department at Harvard University and a research scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital. That was my question. Can this be operationalized in a way that doesn't violate the person's privacy because the best intentions in the world can run afoul of privacy statutes? And who would you alert because of the linked nature of these these accounts? Almost no one would not be connected in some way, even if a couple of times removed from the original poster. It's a very good point you raise, and there are some well-known efforts where well-intended steps have gone awry. So there was a, a platform that would find people on Twitter who were at risk for suicide in crisis and reach out to people in their network, and the effort was stopped in just a few days because it backfired. Uh, you know, someone would say, I'm being bullied, I'm going to kill myself, and the app would reach out to the bully and say, hey, this person's going to kill himself, and the bully might say, good, you should kill yourself. So it was well-intended uh, in terms of finding people and trying to help them, but didn't work the way it was intended. So we're really mindful of the fact that we have to do research and we have to do experiments and we have to see, is this thing that we think helping people, is it actually helping or is it doing harm? And we want to make sure to prevent that. We're consistently motivated by two things. One is people at risk often don't have access to care. This is true of veterans. It's in a way true of service members, military service members. They have access to care, but they're often not using it because they're encouraged not to communicate with other people that they're having mental distress, that they're having thoughts of suicide for fear of being discharged from the service. So they're not getting ready access to care. And the second is peer support. Service members, veterans often say when they're in distress, they don't want to go to sort of traditional clinical channels. They don't want to go to their doctor. They don't want to go to their supervisor. They want to talk to peers. They want to talk to their friends, their comrades, their partners. So what we're trying to do is capitalize on that and get people access to care through their peer support network. And just a detail question, you mentioned, you know, I could be one of the 22 today as an obvious post that is known in its meaning to people in the military. What are some other signs for those that might have a suspicion about someone or just care about other people that are reading these posts? What are some other things that may be a little bit more subtle to look out for? Yeah, that's a great question. There was a, a work group a few years back of suicide researchers who were focused on understanding the science of warning signs for suicide. There are all sorts of efforts and little cards that are handed out saying, here are the things to look out for. Person, you know, becomes disheveled in their appearance or acts a little down. And what the group realizes, there's really no evidence for any of those really subtle things. The big warning signs to look out for are people talking about not wanting to be around anymore, thinking about death, thinking about dying or talking about suicide. So I would encourage people to look out for those things. And it's often difficult, you know, having studied suicide for well over 20 years, it's difficult for me sometimes. So if I have a friend, coworker, patient who subtly mentions something about not wanting to be around anymore, it can be stressful to, to, to broach the subject and ask, 
But I would encourage people to ask, are things so bad that you're thinking about suicide? There's lots of evidence showing that asking people about suicide, talking about suicide, does not make people more suicidal. And that's a big concern. If I ask a question, maybe we'll put the idea in someone's head. And that's just not the case. So given my earlier statistic that two thirds of people who die by suicide told someone about it, I would really encourage people if someone around you subtly hints at or explicitly states that they're thinking about suicide, follow up and ask them about it. And I often try to lead into it. Have you been feeling down? Have you been feeling depressed? Have things been so bad that you thought about not wanting to be alive anymore or that you thought about suicide? And if so, allow the person to share what they're experiencing, listen in an open, concerned way, and talk to them about the importance of getting help and offer to bring them to a, a local emergency department or a hotline or a, a local mental health professional for a thorough evaluation. It could save a life. And what you say about the language means it's really important to design those artificial intelligence algorithms correctly because someone could say, yes. I don't want to be around, and they're referring to a circus that's making noise, you know, down the street. Absolutely. The context is really the harder thing maybe to get at than the specific words. Right. When we, as with anyone, build build these these classifiers, these machine learning classifiers, you want to balance false positives and false negatives, um, as we say. So false positive means, you know, the flag goes up saying, here's something we're concerned about when that's false. It's, you know, the person's talking about the circus. This is the same logic that is used in creating spam filters. Is this spam or is it not? And they work okay. And as you give the, the algorithm feedback, you look into your spam folder and you say, yep, spam, 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 not spam. The algorithm learns. And we do the same thing here. We try and figure out, is this post someone in distress? Are they at risk for suicide? And we're much more okay with false positives than we are with what we call false negatives, where we miss a post that's suicide related. We don't want to miss them. So what we do is flag them and then have a human look through to catch the ones that are false positive and not respond and only respond to the ones that look like they're real people in real distress. Dr. Matthew Nock is chairman of the psychology department at Harvard University and a research scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me and for covering this really important topic. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his suicide research at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.